Mecham Auctions, the world's largest collector car auction company, returns to Indy with Dana Mecham's 37th Original Spring Classic, May 10th through the 18th at the Indiana State Fairground. 3,000 muscle cars, Corvettes, exotics, and more. Broadcast on Motor Trend TV and streaming live on Max. From avid collectors to those new to the Mecham experience, we welcome everyone. Register to bid now at Mecham.com. Andy Moore, Automotive Group Hotline. Adam Driver, the actor, is uh, going to wave the green flag coming up for the 107th running of the greatest spectacle in racing. Let's bring on, I love this conversation before the race every time this time of year, the four-time champion, Meyer Shank Racing. It is Elio Castroneves. Hello, Elio. How are you? Hey, how are you guys doing? Everybody good, okay? I am doing great now that I have you on here. This is like a rite of passage going into a 500 is having you on the show with the week leading up and talking to you about things because you brighten up everybody's world, honestly. Well, I appreciate that comment. It's great to be back on the show. And, uh, yeah, we're here now in Indianapolis. We're ready to go. And, oh, man, I can't just wait. What is um a Tuesday leading up? to the 500 like for you you had practice obviously yesterday but what's the tuesday like for you elio well right now we're doing a lot of media you know um having a conversation with you guys and uh other uh, folks as well which is great promoting the race uh reminded that uh sunday we're going to be on track and we're going to have a good time so yeah it and, and then obviously still working with engineers as well it's not only about the media, everybody's working at the at the shop, at the garage, and uh, we want to make sure the last practice that we're gonna have at uh, at the basically Friday carburetion day is the last time you want to try some things. And yeah, we we want to make sure the car is perfect. You guys have meetings and prepare you and uh, your staff, the engineers, and prepare and, and kind of brainstorm about you know make up a list about things that that you think you should try to be doing to your car. And and if so, what was at the top of your list coming away from this weekend? Well, right now this weekend it feels like it. Firestone changed a little bit of the compound and the construction of the left rear. Is more like technical parts, and uh, we're just trying to uh, limit a little bit of the other uh, the vibration that we have sometimes after certain amount of laps. And uh, we want to make sure when it comes to the the, the, the day of the race, um, the heat won't be affecting as much this issue. And I think uh, everybody's in the same boat, but we want to make sure we're better than everybody else. So, Elio Castro-Nevis with us, what year was it when you felt you had the best car? And was that a championship race-winning year for you? You know, interesting you mentioned that. Um, I have a several scenarios that the car was absolutely incredible. Um, 2003, it was a rocket ship. I mean, nobody could beat me, but unfortunately, it did. It was my teammate, Joe DePerrin, where we ended up finished second. It was under little different circumstances. And uh, 2017, I had a phenomenal car, uh, but Honda was a little bit stronger than the Chevy that year, and unfortunately, it finished second as well. But I tell you what, 2021, my car was pretty, pretty darn good. And... Um, at least we were able to accomplish that as well. So it was three years that we had a, a, a incredible cars um, and amazing, as you can see, 
not all not because you have the fastest car or the best car that sometimes you're going to come out the winner. It's uh, Elio Castroneves, the four-time champion on the Andy Moore Automotive Group Hotline. Is it more difficult for for you and your team to sustain when you know at the start of a race, Elio, you have a great car, or to come up with the means in which to adjust to take this car to the level in which you expect, to a higher level? What's more difficult to do, that during the race or to maintain that from the beginning of the race on? Well, remember, you know, sometimes you practice, and, and the last practice will be Friday, um, but it's two days before the race. <laughs> sometimes you come back and the car is like, oh, the wind is different, the car is, uh, the temperature is different, and then all of a sudden you have to readjust. The best, best, best way is when you don't have to do any adjustments, then you know the car was going to do. But it's, it's, it happens, but it doesn't. So, But even if it doesn't, doesn't mean it's, it's over. You know, you just got to... Continue working. It's about five, six pit stops that you can uh, have the crew to adjust the tire pressure. We have uh, tools inside the car, and um, yeah, and and, and front front wing, rear wing, we can adjust. So all of this, it can make the car better. Yeah, it's it's funny to me because this is how it would seem to me, and I'm curious if if you feel the same or differently. Because you always want to have the the best car to start, and it's great when you, as you mentioned, you have that rocket ship, and and you know that it's better than anybody else. But it has to be really gratifying if you just grind it through a race and then, you know, compete both as a driver, Elio, and then just make great stops and great decisions as a team to be there at the end. That almost, to me, in a grinder like that, seems more gratifying than it would knowing at the beginning of the race that you just have a great car. Well, only when you finish the results, then it's like, oh, that was fantastic. But I tell you what. (laughs) When you start the race and the car is not good, trust me, you're like, oh, please, get me out of here. And it's not like that all the time. I can't imagine, too. And you've been around it so long. I, I can't imagine that there's you know, a situation that you, you haven't been in or you know information you could not pass along to those that, that try to fix it along the way. Do you maintain, too, because you're, you're awesome to have on the show. You're awesome when we talk in the month of May every single time. Do you maintain the level of excitement for going into the 107th running of the 500 as you did going back when you were a rookie in this race? Of course. I mean, we're talking about the Indy 500. Uh, not many people have the opportunity to be here. So you got to enjoy. you got to work hard, obviously, to achieve your goals. But uh, at the same time, it's, um, it's an opportunity that, that not many uh, drivers are uh, able to do it. So, yeah, I'm trying to keep this way, not because I want it, because uh, it's just my nature. And I, and I want the people around me to have the same feeling because I tell you what, when you win, uh, it tastes even better. Does everybody on your race team match your enthusiasm? I, I would think that that would be necessary. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, they, everybody's uh, it's pretty pretty excited. Uh, you know, the mechanics, they work things and they's in and out. Uh, they, they have a very hard work, uh, uh, you know, to put this car together. It takes a lot of talent. Uh, the engineer side as well, and uh, and pit crew. You know, I mean, those guys are the fastest in business. So you want to have them, you know, rest, prepare, focus, and energize for sure. So Elio Castroneves, the four-time champion, with us via the Andy Moore Automotive Group hotline. What are some of the likes and dislikes coming off of pole weekend and you know getting ready for this race on Sunday? Some of the likes about your car, some of the things you're hoping that you and the engineers come up with make changes for the better, Elio. 
Interesting. Um, I wish you would have. Well, they cut down the time that the way used to be back then. Remember, we used to have whole month. That's why it's the month of May, right? Yeah. Which is which is good too. Don't get me wrong. It's also cool to not have a lot at a time when you have a good car because you don't want to give a chance to, for people to prepare as much. Um, however, that's the way it is. Uh, we, you just gotta you just gotta keep it going. And uh, but I wish we would go back the same way it used to be in the past. Uh, I think it would be nicer for for everyone. Plus the the qualifying. I like the qualifying what it is, but I think it's I don't know. I, I just um, I'm maybe uh, now that I'm older, I, I like the old style. I guess. Well, you know, and it's funny because I'm older too, even older than you, and I always like the old style. I always. <laughs> go with the old style does it um does it make it more difficult to prepare when you have a, a shorter time in which to do so unlike when when obviously you were first starting and you had basically the entirety of the month of may to get ready yeah you imagine the rookies as well uh it's hard for them uh to to be prepared i mean there is a lot of pros and and, and, and cons obviously and now that the cars are so equal to each other oh my god you really got to try these small details. And in a short period of time, it becomes very difficult. It's Elio Castro-Nevis with us via the Andy Moore Automotive Group Hotline. You ever given yourself a, a timetable? You know, obviously you've uh, won it four times. I know it'd be great to to do it a fifth time, but how much longer do you feel that you have getting into a car at the 500? Have you allowed yourself to to give yourself a timetable at all, or are you just going with this year after year, Elio? Yeah, basically, as long as you have fun, I want to, every time I'm here, I, I don't see myself leaving. That's the problem. Um, I, 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 sometimes you ask about the other drivers. I actually ask about, um, um, you know, some of the other words, ow, and things like that. I, say, I don't know. I, I, I just feel that I, I, I don't want to stay away from here. So probably, even if I'm not racing, I'm going to be involved in some kind of ways here, for sure. So uh, team-wise, team owner-wise, ownership down the road, maybe? I, team owner would like to help the you know be i don't know honestly if i knew then that means the time for me to move on but right now <laughs> i still, still going to teach those kids how to drive race car i um elio joins us who gave you the best the most the best the most sound advice when you were a young driver let's say going into your rookie year that is still advice that you use today in terms of getting around and having a, a, a win, having a championship car, a championship run um, at Indianapolis, who, who gave you, provided that best advice? Uh, that's my uh, my hero, mentor, Rick Mears. He, uh, he basically, he really, for so many years, we worked together and uh, so many things that he said, it has actually happened. And uh, he was, um, and again, uh, one of the quotes that he always said is, "Finish first. First, you gotta finish." And it's exactly perfect words fits to this place. Yeah, you become more patient over the years. I mean, we all, I guess, Elio, with age, kind of so. become more patient. Have you become more patient? I guess. Yeah, I don't distract as much. Sometimes it's like I gotta be one. I gotta be P one. And sometimes yeah. like, no, let's make the car right. And I think, uh, yeah, that, you consider that patient. I guess it is. Yeah, see, I I think that'd be difficult for a highly successful driver like you. Uh, that'd be to me the most difficult thing. 
because you got obviously the talent. You you have the talent. You got a team around you, but it's it's that that patience. Because to me, for a driver, it's always about getting to that spot before anybody else, and to be patient with a bad car, to be patient with what is a struggle at the beginning. It seemed like for somebody like you, that would be be difficult. I, I guess that's something you ultimately have to grow into, isn't it? Yeah, you just um, you just learn. You uh, but I tell you one thing: you're always learning this place. You never, every time you go out there, is always something different and always something to learn. And that's why I, I enjoy the challenge of this uh, amazing track. A couple more things here with Elio. What's the latest thing that you learned? I mean, the most recent thing that you went out there and went, well, you know, I've been out here for how many years now? And I sure as hell didn't know that. What was it? I just I just kissed the wall in qualifying. That was my first time ever. I'm like, whoa. <laughs> I definitely was pushing the limit there. And, uh, but, um yeah, no, it, it was a lot different the setups that normally we used to have. Even this the same car. Um, yeah, I'm still kind of like um, very much into the numbers to make sure that we hit that right balance because it's very crucial when you go into the race with a good balance. Elio, you're going to go down in history whenever that is. Um, when you are done as one of the greatest to ever do it here, one of the most popular, certainly, to ever do it here. What does uh, the Indianapolis fan base, the uh, the fans of this race here in Indy, mean to you? Well, I'll tell you one thing. This place is magical. And I, I know it sounds cliche, but it is. And, uh, <laughs> and the fans are magical. They really um, – it's you don't have a fans like this. It's generation of generation of fans. And you can reproduce that. This is a 107th uh, uh, edition of the Indy 500. And, yeah, there is a lot of history. And it's not only about the drivers, teams, but it's about the fans, too. Yeah, well, there's no doubt. As far as popularity goes, you will go down in history as one of the most popular. Going for a fifth coming up on Sunday, Meyer Shank Racing. It is the four-time champion, Elio Castro-Nevis. Kind enough to join us on the Andy Moore Automotive Group Potline. I know you got a ton to do today. I appreciate you hopping on, as you always do, before the race. And, hey, let's hope both you and I get to talk uh, for many more 500s to come here. And uh, the best of luck going after number five on Sunday, Elio. Thank you so much, and thanks again for having me on the show. Via the Andy Moore Automotive Group hotline, uh, the Colts with OTAs underway. A lot of things to talk about, I'm assuming, there, and also some rules changes, some reevaluations, and how they're going to handle flexing on Thursday night, all coming from the Minneapolis spring owners' meetings. And to cover that and more, he is Joel A. Erickson of the Star on the Andy Moore Automotive Group Hotline. As if we didn't have enough going on, this adds to it. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know the NFL. They, they don't like to leave dead spots on the schedule, so – uh, they're they're finding a way to get get some stuff going here, um, with with a little bit of news. The, the Thursday thing is maybe the most interesting to me. Just the the idea of of all of a sudden your game ends up going from Sunday to Thursday. I, I'd be curious to hear from fans who travel and stuff how much of a big deal that could be uh, for them. Uh, just just curious if if it'd be hard to switch it around. If it wouldn't be, uh, just be interested to see. Uh, you know, if if it's say it's a road game out of town that you had planned to go to, you know, would would it be how difficult would it be to switch your switch your stuff up to get to the game if it got switched to a Thursday? I wonder if the uh, the networks um, love the fact that how how much the NFL is uh, bending to the presence of Amazon, Joel. You know, 
I, I think that the networks understand that the, uh, the 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 language the NFL understands when it comes to scheduling is money. So they're probably watching it and going, right. "Well, we can we can figure out a way to to, to work this for us the next time we're in negotiations." <laughs> Um, and maybe even before that, maybe even before that. Hey, Joel, you're uh, much uh, smarter and uh, much younger than I am. And obviously the time that I've enjoyed watching football, uh, the coverage has drastically changed. How far away are we from full-blown streaming, you think, here? That's a great question. Um it seems like there, there's been some there's been some talk about the uh the, the college conferences trying to figure out a way to start their own streaming services. Um, I, I think that that's maybe a, a possibility. I, I know, I, I wonder if, you know, what do you do with, like, I'll be honest, I, I still have, I still have direct TV because I hate watching it on delay. Um, it drives me nuts. Well, I have, I'm, I'm direct TV since 2000. This is my 23rd year of direct TV. Now, part of it is because I don't want to blank with changing it. Um, and it's got, as you as you know, Joel, it's it's got its own warts too that we have to deal with. But it doesn't yeah. seem like it's yeah. as much. It seems like with what content we want, we can turn it on and we know what's going to be there. That just doesn't sound like it's true with the other options. That's that's it. It seems like it's it's harder to make sure if you're a voracious sports watcher. It seems to me, just in being at friends' houses and stuff, that there's. There's inevitably a game or two or something that don't end up where I want it, um, which, as you know, it's a little bit easier when you just buy a package and right. you go, okay, it's on Big Ten Network, I'm good. It's on, uh, you know, the, the the Brewers and Reds are playing, and it's it's blacked out on MLB TV. I do have MLB TV. That's the one streaming uh, sports app I have. But, you know, it's it's blacked out while well, I'm good because I still have it, you know. And so I wonder, I wonder if they can – one of the streaming services has to get to the point where I look it up and it says I can have all of that stuff before I really make the jump. It just it, it seems like we are so incredibly close to full-time streaming, uh, a.k.a. pay-per-view, because that's what it's going to come down to is that. Is, it's not you know, it's, you know, streaming, okay, but it's going to be pay-per-view. Yeah, that's that's a really you know what that's I never thought about it that way, but that's a good way yeah. to put it. That's what, that's what you're doing, you know. Like with my MLB subscription, I pay for the right to watch, you know, the Milwaukee Brewers wherever they are. Sure, you know that's that's exactly what it is. It's pay per view. Yeah, and um, it um, <laughs> it's going to become more difficult, especially for me. Um, I, I'm old habit guy. There's no doubt, and yeah, I'm going to be kicking and screaming. I I can't tell you how much I pay Directv. It's embarrassing how much I pay, and <laughs> and literally, I just want every option that I care about. That's the only reason I have it. I want to be able to watch the Reds this time of year. I want to make sure that there's always going to be the Pacers. You know, I got to go to what six seventy one or whatever, and then down to a couple of sub channels to to find it. But that's easy enough. And you know, other than that, I watch older movies from my generation and like Andrew Griffith episodes. I don't really need anything else. But it is so incredibly expensive. I see. Joel, why people have decided to go against it and go someplace else, but I could not stand with not having something. You know what I mean? Especially if you need it and it's supposed to be there and it's not. You know, if you, if your internet service isn't working and it's lagging behind or it's in that significant amount of delay, I don't know if I could deal with that. 
for me, it's the it's the you know I want to turn on a game. You know, my wife went to Auburn. If I want to turn on the Auburn game, it's on the SEC Network, and I can't figure out where it is on streaming. You know, that's the that's the that's the part that I don't love is, and and I know you can you can massage it and get it, but but it seems like it seems like like I said, it seems like at my friends' houses whenever I'm doing it. Um, there's a, every once in a while it's hey where, can we get this game on and no we can't actually um, right don't know how to get that one on and that's that's the thing that's tough for me as as somebody who watches I'm sure you're probably the same I mean I would say 75 percent of my TV viewing is sports in one way or the other um, yeah. Yeah. and and so that's that's the tough part. Yeah, it is. Joe A. Erickson of the Star is on the Andy Moore Automotive Group hotline. I saw Zaire Franklin with the uh, new rules in terms of kickoffs um, saying, hey, you know what? We, we understand this is a rough sport. You can't keep taking things out of it for the sake of that. We know what we're getting into. Um, that's what Zaire Franklin of the Colts said via social media. Do you think that that is a predominant belief with the league and its players? Are they glad that measures are being taken differently now for the kickoffs? Is that necessary? How do you view this? Well, it sounds like with this kickoff, it sounds like with this kickoff rule that if you talk to players and special teams coaches and uh, anybody underneath the competition committee level, because they do have some head coaches on it, that they did not like this rule. They don't like the, uh, um, they, they don't they don't want it to go this way where you you have the touchback, you can you can fair catch it and it comes out to the twenty five. Um, it's it's a piece of the game that. You know, and I think the other thing that's interesting is, you know, like with a guy like Zaire Franklin tweeting that, like it's important to remember Zaire Franklin got to where he is in the NFL by running down on kickoffs and punts. Um, and and I'm sure that there's probably part of uh, maybe maybe that's not what he's thinking about right then. I, you know, I, you know, it, I, I tend to agree with him that at some point, I think that a lot of the safety rules that they put in are are, you know, good and right and smart and sometimes you know i see people say well you could have done that in the 80s and i'm like well maybe you should have been able to do that in the 80s but yeah they didn't they, the nfl didn't know they had to cover their own ass in the 80s like they do now that's part of it i i think the other thing but i think that i do think that there's a point where um you know if if players understand it like what Zaire's tweeting here you know yeah you know if players understand the risks then you know, at some point, the risks are the risks, um, and if players are if players are okay with that, they should have a say in it too. I, I don't love the kickoff rule, especially because, mainly because you don't love it whenever the whole league is against it. You know, it doesn't it doesn't sound like it doesn't the the, the combine moving away from Indianapolis is sort of the same type of thing where you know everyone underneath the ownership level doesn't like it. And they're going to do it anyway. I don't really love it when the NFL likes to do that kind of stuff. So, Joel, for whatever reason it is, I, I I agree with you on that. And Joel, this is what I gather: getting the ball to twenty-five. And I wonder if you agree with me on this: uh, getting the ball to twenty-five in this era of offense and how the rules are so skewed, and how the caliber of offense has never been greater with many of these teams. It's almost like now that you give them the ball to twenty-five. It's to me, it's like maybe 10, 15, 20 years ago, giving a team the ball, you know, at the 35. 
You know what I mean? Or the 40. That's the way that it feels with the caliber of offenses and the rules the way they are designed for that caliber of offense. It seems like that it needs to go back from the 25. Yeah, I, the NFL probably feels that if it goes back from the 25, then they are incentivizing people to take kickoffs out yeah. and return them. And it seems like they're trying to get rid of that. Right. Um, but I agree with you. I, and actually, you're not the only one who said this. I saw it. Um, Aaron Schatz, the guy who runs Football Outsiders, tweeted the same thing. Like, is there any way we can give, like, if you're going to do this rule, like maybe move it back to the 20 uh, just to give defense a little bit of something? Because you're right. I, I think when, when it – I mean, it used to be that if the – if a, it used to be that you felt like if, if a touchback happened, it's crazy how much five yards does that. But it used to feel like that when, they, when a touchback happened in a late-game situation, they really had to drive. And now on the 25, if it's, you know – not not last year Rodgers, but the Rodgers before that, or Mahomes or Allen or one of those guys, they get the ball in 25 with a minute and 30 seconds and, uh, you know, one time out. Most of us are thinking they're going to score in some way or the other, right? Right. right. Well, I mean, at least, if, if, no, at least a field goal because we didn't even factor in the kickers. I mean, hell, now these guys are supposed to bang it in from 50-plus like they did, you know, 15, 20 years ago from 40. Right. Right, no, a hundred percent. I mean, the, the kicking percentages are are so mu- have, have changed so much, and you know, it's it's uh, it's it's interesting to see how the game's changing. This kickoff rule, I mean, they said they're, they're going to get seven percent less kickoff. It doesn't seem like a lot to me. Uh, and also, you know, there's also a part of me as a football fan, a kickoff return for a touchdown is still one of the, it's still one of the most exciting plays the game has to offer. They don't happen that often. When they cut, when they, when they do happen, it's it's spectacular. Um, and and like I said, for the guys like Zaire Franklin who are developmental guys, like that's how they get, that's how they earn their place in the league. And then you know, injury gives them a chance, and they get 160 tackles. You know, that's that's part of the Colts' philosophy, and, and not just the Colts' philosophy. A lot of teams' philosophy around the league is those late round guys. You draft them, and then the place to develop them is on special teams. And the more you take that out of the game, the harder it is to develop those guys. You know, Joel, Zaire Franklin, here was the tweet about an hour ago. At what point are we just going to accept football as a violent game? If you want to play seven on seven, just say that. You can't keep just trying to phase out parts of the game. I think a lot of people, not within the NFL, but a lot of people are the league office, that is. Uh, A lot of people, I think, would agree with that statement. Yeah, and I think that okay, so that like there's there's a point where like people look at that as like a well that means you just don't care about the risks, and I don't think that's what Zaire is saying. I don't think that's what people are saying anymore. I think that's maybe when these rules started coming in, people were saying it doesn't matter who cares if they get hurt, that kind of thing. I think now they're saying, listen, we understand the risks. Please don't change the game so much that I don't recognize it. You know, it, in terms of like, like I think I think one thing, and this this might just be me, but I think that one thing that's interesting is that I do believe that the concussion protocol has has made things safer for players by keeping them out longer. You know, now frequently you'll have a a Monday morning or a Monday afternoon press conference where where the coach will say, "Hey, this guy has been put in a concussion protocol. He didn't leave the game yesterday, but he developed symptoms after." You and I both know that never would have happened. What fifteen years ago? Right. Um, 
you know, there there is stuff that has gotten better, but I, I do think that at some point, you know, when Zaire's a really thoughtful guy. That's that's uh, he's a really smart, really thoughtful uh, guy, and and I think that you're getting to that point where, you know, that the some of the quarterback stuff too. You know, like when the quarterback one is another good one because like you see like perfect form tackles get flagged for driving into the ground or whatever. It happens like, you know, four or five times a year. And and it's not they're not doing anything malicious. There was one last year. I can't remember what game I was watching. There was one last year where the, the player hit the quarterback and started rolling off of his body as as he hit him. And he got flagged for that. And I think that one's another one that's hard for defensive players going, hey, I, I thought I did everything you asked me to do. Um I, I don't think, you know, some are like the headshots and stuff like that. I don't yeah. think that those get defended the same way. But some sometimes you're just looking at the defensive players like, I don't know what these guys are supposed to do. Yeah, I, I'd agree with that. Joel A. Erickson of the Stars on the Andy Moore Automotive Group hotline. So I, I saw where Jim Mersey had mentioned uh, in a quote that the uh, – uh, the owners are set to finalize a contract extension for Roger Goodell, the commissioner, through 2027. That so much isn't the story than one that I have talked about. I don't know if you and I have had this conversation. I know I have with, with Zach Kiefer. I know I have with Stephen Holder. But to me, it's becoming more and more obvious that, that Jim Irsay wants to be the lead voice among NFL owners. Um, both Stephen and Zach aren't quite to that point in believing that yet. Are you? I I think that in a, I don't know about lead voice, but by nature of him being a public figure who likes to talk and likes to do interviews, you're going to end up in that role. And you kind of see this with like Jerry Jones is another one who talks a lot because there are, there are 16 to 20 owners that you never hear from ever. Um, you never see them quoted on Twitter. You never see them quoted about their own teams. Um, and and so if you're like Ursay, if you're willing to talk about football, if you're willing to talk about what's going on in the meetings, um, you're going to sort of end up, whether or not that's the goal, you're sort of going to end up becoming the league spokesman just because you're one of the ones that's willing. I'm trying to think of who else, uh, as an owner, you see commenting a lot. Jones is, is, is the most common one. Um, yeah, I, I, I mean, that's really that, it's it's. I mean, you could easily come up with them if because they would be more obvious if they were more prevalent, and that's the case here. They're not. Yeah, I mean, you get like like you know that some guys are involved with their own team. Like David Tepper in Carolina was obviously very visible during the draft process yeah. and talked a lot about, but he talks a lot about his own team. And whereas Ursay is is comfortable talking about the entire league. And I think in some ways he probably does relish that and like that because, you know, we've all heard him talk enough to know that this is somebody who really cares deeply about the history of the game. It's always on the tip of his tongue. He's always talking about it. And I think that he probably has the appreciation for, you know, we're making these rule changes and this alters the course of the league in one way or the other. So he he is he is willing to comment on it. And, and by de facto, whether it's by intention or not by intention, just by the fact that you're an owner who speaks on league issues is going to make you sort of a de facto spokesman for that group. Kind of the way Jerry Jones, I mean, Jerry Jones is really the only other one I can think of 
who we see commenting on this type of stuff left and right. Yeah, it's uh, Joel A. Erickson of the Stars on the Andy Moore Automotive Group hotline. I do want to get to the OTAs with the Colts before I let you go here, but this dates back to Saturday, and, and I tried not to make this a big deal because I didn't want it to be a big deal. I didn't think it should be a big deal, but people had asked me to address it, and on Saturday... Uh, this was after the Friday passing of legend Jim Brown. Jim Mersey took to Twitter and came up with his own top five greatest NFL players of all time. And it was Jim Brown, Tom Brady, John Elway, Deacon Jones, and Reggie White. And I know that he was just being honest. And when that popped, the first thing I said is, I know that he doesn't want to be viewed as biased, but in this case, it's okay. And it's not like it isn't an argument you, you can't have. I think in every top five of the NFL, Jim Irsay should have Peyton Manning listed in that top five. In this case, he had John Elway, which would lead to having to explain why you had a guy that didn't want to play within your organization years before uh, on this particular top five list. Again, it is not the biggest of deals, but I, I fast forward to just a little while ago where he got back on Twitter and was talking about the criteria at the top of the list of NFL great players. And this is from a tweet of his about six hours ago. When it comes to changing a franchise on and off the field, Peyton is a clear number one for his overall influence. Talking about Peyton Manning here. So I think that puts a band-aid over what some felt was probably an omission uh, of sorts of Jim Irsay on Saturday with that tweet. You agree? Yeah. Uh, there's been a couple of tweets. You know, he tweeted – uh, yesterday, you know, his tweaks to his top five, not above more thought and reassessment. He tweeted again. Um, it seems like people, you know, you said you were getting some some talk from fans and stuff. It seems like people responded pretty, pretty uh, vociferously to that. It's, that's tough. It's, it's it's almost like those top five ranking ranking anything at this point. The way things are, you know, you kind of need you kind of need to know that there's probably going to be some some blowback in some way or the other, especially, especially you start thinking about top five football players all time. You know, that's not even a discussion that most of us ever have because most of us are talking about positions. You know, who's the top five quarterbacks, who's the top five uh, running backs, that kind of thing. And then you start trying to cross positions over like that. That to me is almost an impossible task in and of itself but yeah, I, I think if you're, you know, generally you should, if if you have a player as great as Peyton Manning, uh, I think it's, I think you're fine if you play to the fans there. And he did what he did, or you believe yeah. it. And I think the last thing you want to have to do is then have a tweet to explain and justify why you thought John Elway should be there instead. That's not good. Um, and I think he realized <laughs> that, and then, and then ultimately it changed it up. But I think in his case, with what Manning meant and still does certainly here, but what he meant uh, to where this organization is compared to where it could be without his presence here, I think it's okay generally to be biased, and I think in terms of Jim Irsay, you should always be biased. So that's that was my view, and that was my answer. Yeah, that's probably, that's probably smart. OTA, yeah, it's it, like it is. A, really quick, OTA's storylines besides the rookie quarterback, what do you got? Well, so the hard part with OTAs is you just kind of know that you got to cross the front seven on defense. Well, not not necessarily in pass coverage, but you cross the uh, the the offensive line and defensive line off because they're not really 
going full bore on anything. Um, the the another story like just the secondary. I mean, we're, we're not going to find out what's how that's going to shake out until training camp. But that's there's a lot of young dudes back there in in the secondary, especially a cornerback. In terms of guys that fit the the profile that this coaching staff wants, uh, I think the secondary is is interesting to me. Just how's this going to shake out? Is, you know, Juju Brents, Darius Rush. You got Isaiah Rogers and Kenny Moore there. Is Dallas Flowers a player? Is he not? Um, that's going to be interesting going forward. Um, and then I think, I think the the hard, the the obvious thing here is that uh, with with all of the with all of it, a lot of it is going to be questions about the quarterback and who's taking which reps and that kind of thing. You know, you said outside of the rookie quarterback, but. Inevitably, OTAs are kind of about the quarterback because of what right. in the refreshing game because of the way it's set up, and so we're going to end up getting pushed back there. Um, I think there's some interesting things at wide receiver, but I don't think they're going to manifest themselves until camp. Um, in terms of something to really pay attention to and really watch for, in terms of like you know Josh Downs taking Isaiah McKen taking the slot away from Isaiah McKenzie, that kind of thing. I think that's when you'll really find out. These OTAs, it's really more about kind of setting the table. He is Joel A. Erickson in the star. He'll have you covered for the OTAs and those storylines and a lot more on what is going to be a busy rest of the week and certainly a weekend for uh, not only Joel, but for all his colleagues in the star and the sports department. Joel, I appreciate you more than you know, man. We'll do it again soon. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for having me on. On the Andy Moore Automotive Group Pylon, he's doing a lot of things, I'm assuming, including a lot of uh, post-race coverage coming up on Sunday. That's just my guess. Greg Rakestraw is with us. Is that on the mark? That is correct, sir. I have my standard race day early morning into the evening doubleheader of morning PA with track dude Michael Young. Nice. And then uh, making sense of all of it on 93 WIBC and these two radio frequencies right here. That is nice right there, too. Hanging out with the track dude is a good time, by the way. Well, you you know this, but many may not know this. Uh, Michael was kind of quasi-technically my boss, one of my part-time gigs, like in a whole different millennium, because in addition, like you, to working at the other former AM sports talker in the market, mm-hmm. uh, I, 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 I spun some discs on X103, where track dude was the music director, so he and I may have known each other now for 27 years at this point. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that whatsoever. He's just a great dude. Knows radio, certainly knows and loves IndyCar, open wheel, perfect for the PA, perfect for the IMS radio network. He is much like you are. So what do you make of the, the circumstances coming out of Indy the last 48 hours, Greg? Crazy. Uh, first of all, I think that was like our first significant incident of the month uh, is insane. And I realized that, you know, we are now down to, you know, three days of practice because of the rain last week uh, in terms of the 500. Uh, but you would have thought with all of the pushing of the envelope in terms of finding speeds that somebody would have had something get loose in a qualifications run. I mean, my goodness, we had 84 of those things in six hours and 50 minutes on Saturday. And then you have, you know, the, the, the 12 runs for the pole, then six runs for the pole, and then the six or seven of qualifying runs inside of that. The fact that nobody had made contact with a wall, even by their lonesome, 
uh, is remarkably until yesterday. And as soon as it was announced last night that staff would not be able to drive, the immediate thought was, well, they're open the spot for Graham Rahal. Now, honestly, in my own mind, I had not, you know, kind of crossed the, the bridge of, well, he normally drives a Honda, and this is a Chevrolet team. I had not gotten that far, but I'm glad that that did not get in the way of allowing Graham to compete in the Indianapolis 500. So uh, I feel gutted for Stephen Wilson because basically he bases his racing year off of this race. So he has to wait 365 days again, not just for the 500, but for his next true chance to step into a, in, into a racing car. So it's kind of what he does. Um, but but I, I guess relief for Graham Rahal that they have to go through kind of what his dad did 30 years ago and sitting there and watching the greatest spectacle in racing. Do you think the, the hoops in which they had to jump through to get Graham Rahal in that dry Orion Bowl ride, given the engine manufacturers and that, uh, was that easier said than done? Um, and I, I'm, I'm sure there was something a little more difficult behind the scenes. But let's face it, I, I you know, Graham has been a member of the Honda family ever since he set foot in the IndyCar series. So he's got 15 years of relationship. Uh, and for as big as the Ray Hall name is uh, in, in IndyCar racing, that's the third or fourth biggest Honda team right now. And so if he is on one of the larger teams, maybe we're having a different conversation. Um, but, and, and let's face you know, the, the, two, the two sides compete against each other. But most everything in terms of competition is a pretty friendly competition in the IndyCar series. So this is not like it would have been in Formula One or maybe even NASCAR. In other words, I'm not surprised that the two sides said, let's, re- let's, let's recognize this is for the greater good and let's not our, let our stuff get in the way of this actually happening. So Greg Graystraw is with us via the Andy Moore Automotive Group hotline. I want to switch gears with you, no pun intended, by the way. And we talked about the high school level baseball, the high school level softball being at an incredibly high level, especially individually speaking. We've talked about that weeks and and really months ago. But how good, because we brought up Indiana State, how good has collegiate baseball been in this state this year? It's been exceedingly well. Obviously, I'm a little biased towards the model model that's still playing at the Division II level. Uh, Best of luck, Greyhounds, over in Quincy. In the Division II Super Regionals, they are one of 16 teams left playing at this point at the Division II level. But for all the love, because I do a couple of games and because you have gone there, we have slathered on Indiana State. Hey, Indiana's pretty good, too. <laughs> you know, Indiana's the two-seed coming up in the Big Ten tournament, and I think they have locked up a berth in the NCAA field and don't have to feel they have to win the Big Ten out in Omaha, you know, just to get there, so... So, yes, uh, it has been a very good year for college baseball uh, in, in in terms of the Division One and even the small college level, too. Our mutual friend, Ari, who uh, covers it like nobody's business, IU Baseball, had mentioned to me last Thursday at the District Tap that there was a path, probably not going to happen, but a path for if Indiana State hosted a regional in Terre Haute for IU, Notre Dame, and Ball State maybe to be a part of it. Had you heard that at all? I would say that is a possibility. And obviously, and I I can't sit here and give you a chapter and verse what Notre Dame has done. Obviously, being in the ACC, that league is going to get seven or eight teams, if not more, out of the 64. Ball State, quality program in the MAC, has to win the MAC for that to happen. But I do think there is a possibility of Indiana State getting a one, 
and IU getting a two or a three and being placed in Indiana State's regional. Indiana State did what they had to do. They, they had the one slip up a couple of Fridays ago against Murray. But against the other best team in their league, they went on the road and smoked them the last weekend of the season, sitting all three from Missouri State. Uh, I still think Indiana State would have to win the Missouri Valley Tournament for them to be a regional host. But I do think they are at least under consideration going to the final week of the season. So Greg Graystraw with us via the Andy Moore Automotive Group Potline. So Mitch Hannis was the coach of the year in the MVC. I'm assuming they have a college baseball coach of the year. Where might he rank in that? Is he in the ballpark anywhere? You would think so. I mean, I, I can't sit here and tell you that I have this great knowledge of college baseball outside of his state. I know, for example, UConn was number nine a couple of weeks ago, and you would think a, another northern team might get a, a little more attention in terms of what they have done. Now, they were beaten by Butler in one of their three games. That ranking probably came down a little bit uh, a couple of weeks ago. But, yes, Mitch would be under consideration for every major national award, too. All right. One of the other things you cover, the Indy 11, and they've acquired a franchise in the top level of professional soccer in the U.S. What about that? So so here's, here's the way it works. So this is for the Women's Super League, and the Women's Super League is part of the league that the men's team for the Indy 11 plays in. It's under the banner of the United Soccer League or the USL. Uh, they have talked about – uh, starting a professional league out of the U.S. on the women's side for some time. A couple of years ago, this was first announced, it was going to be at the Division II level, which would be the equivalent of what the Indy 11 play in. For the men, they play in the USL Championship. Major League Soccer is the top league. After some research, after talking with prospective owners, they have decided to start another Division I league. There are basically 12 teams right now that play at the top flight of women's professional soccer. It is the only uh, women's professional league in this country. Many other women's amateur leagues, like the one the USL women's team plays in, it is comprised of players who just finished their college eligibility or are still a college player or those that have played but maybe potentially overseas for a few years but aren't playing professionally now. So, in other words, none of the women's players that play for the Indy 11 this summer are making any money or getting paid, you know, by the team. Indy 11 is elected to, it was kind of, do you pursue the NWSL route, which is where the team in Louisville is based out of, the team that Chicago is based out of, or do you go the Super League route and be part of this new league? And that is what the Indy 11 have elected to do. The league itself will start next fall, August 24th, the earliest that the Indy 11 would play would be the following fall in August of 25, and the reason being that is when 11 parks should be done. That has always, even for a decade, that has always been the kind of the take from Indy 11 ownership through different general managers, CEOs, etc. It has always been, hey, once we get a stadium deal done, we will have a women's professional team, and that's exactly how it is playing out. So it's a new team in what will be a brand new league. The other thing to note is that that league will play what is the FIFA world calendar. They will play August through May. So it will not be a summertime-based league, and I'm sure there's going to be a bit of a winter break that is involved there, which is kind of what happens in places like Germany and Russia that play on that calendar. They take a, a large chunk of January off to avoid the coldest temperatures of the year. But, yes, women's professional soccer is going to be played at 11 Park 
as soon as it's constructed, shovels go on the ground in the next few days with the idea they're playing professional soccer on the women's side here in August of 2025. Yeah, that's what I heard. The, the groundbreaking happens here relatively soon, right? Next week? I'm not sure if it's been officially announced yet. I know the date, and so I will confirm it as soon. But if the press release has gone out and I've missed it, then yes, that date would, date would be accurate. <laughs> <laughs> yes, no, I've been no. a little busy. Sorry, John. <laughs> no, that's okay. Hey, who's your pick to win Sunday? Got anybody? Uh God, I, I, I hate to pick the pole sitter because it's so obvious. Man, Polo looks really good right now, doesn't he? Um, I would say any of the McLaren cars. I, I still would kind of limit it to, and 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 Kanan I think would be a stretch, even though he's obviously knows what he's doing. Obviously, he's in a really fast car. I still think there. I think I think this is the toughest it's ever been for a driver in a one-off scenario to come in and win the race because the field are so they're so deep. And you're looking at 25, 26, you know, full-time entrants that are participating in the 500. I think it's difficult for a Kanan or a Sato, even though they've got great equipment, to come in and win the 500. So I, I, I would tend to think that you are looking at it's going to be from the three full-time Aero McLaren cars, the, the, the top two contenders, and really I should include Erickson, so let's make it three, of the Ganassi, if you said I'll give you those six for the for, against versus the field, I'd take those six. And of that group, it's Pelot that looks the best of everybody right now. I've got Takuma Sato, the two-time winner. I'm not going to fight you on that. I would love for Sato to win it again. I, I just I don't know if being a two race a year guy or an Obels only guy at this point that that he can do it, but. If, if he does it, good for you, and more importantly, good for him. I've got Castro Nevis coming up at the top of the hour, the four-time winner. What are his chances? Uh, not great, just because they've, they've not had speed in that car. And, you know, the, the, the moment of the glory for Meyer Shank was two years ago with Elio at the 500. They've been, frankly, more non-competitive than competitive since. I expect him to be on the lead lap and finish it running, because seemingly he always does. So because it's Elio, he's got a puncher's chance, but I would not put him amongst the favorites. And again, because of Elio, I hope I am spot-on wrong about that because I'd love to see him win a fifth. He is Greg Rakestraw with us via the Andy Moore Automotive Group hotline. He's on the PA with the track dude on race day morning. And then uh, right here telling you what happened in the 107th running of the Indy 500 coming up on Sunday afternoon. Greg's with us via the Andy Moore Automotive Group hotline and also listening to the JMV Takeover on Saturday night in preparation for all of that, correct? Yeah, I'm actually correct. I because I have Indy 11 at seven, so yeah. like I can't, I won't be in bed any sooner than say 10:30. So I will call at my standard 9:30ish time after an Indy 11 home game. So I already have like my my six to midnight request in formulated in my mind. <laughs> um, but since I won't be up past midnight. If you want to have the Judas Priest queued up for 12:01, oh, yeah. you go right ahead. Judas Priest, there you go. British well, Steel well, yeah. coming at you from Greg Rakestraw right there. We'll do it. it, it, it it's living after midnight, right? I got that I'm, right. I'm not, I'm not missing the obvious. Okay, go. I want to make sure. I did say the right band name. Okay, so yep. I want to make sure there. Oh, we'll do uh, Crocus too. Midnight Maniac would also work. Yes. I, th- I, I think that is a Larceny Bourbon double shot right there, <laughs> isn't it? Appreciate you, brother. See you, dude.